this session, we're going to examine point of care ultrasound. We're going to look at its utility and also its limitations in both the pre and in hospital environment. We'll be specially focused on the EFAST, so the extended focused abdominal sonography in trauma, and how it's been adapted and is progressive to the point of care treatment in the last five years. So to do this with me, I have a friend and colleague, Gaynor Prince. So welcome to the podcast, Gaynor. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you in this discussion. As you know, ultrasound excites me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great modality um, to extend your investigation and clinical acumen, really. So yeah, thanks for inviting me. Oh, pleasure! Absolute pleasure. Gains for the for the audience. Could you just maybe unpack your role now and also your sort of relationship, so to speak, with with ultrasound? How how you've uh, sort of it's been in, embedded within your clinical practice over the last few years? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am an emergency physician. I work in New Zealand um, on the south top of the South Island in actually quite a small emergency department. Um, in a town called Blenheim, so a hospital is Wyra Hospital. Um, <clears throat> I first started using ultrasound in around about 2010. Um, the case that I remember is an elderly guy who was triaged um, with renal colic, um, and it was evening handover around about 10.30 at night. Um, he was 72 and the nurse came over to me as the senior um, doctor on nights and said, can you come see this guy? He's hypotensive. And that, that triggered something in my brain and I popped an unaccredited probe on, which I don't, uh, I wouldn't say that you should do <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> but I saw a big AAA and um, yeah, he, he was taken promptly to theatre and he survived. So that, that kind of just opened the door for me. Um, I subsequently finished my emergency training and I went over to Western Australia. It's kind of a hub of ultrasound development in, the emergency, depart uh, in emergency medicine. Um, I did a diploma of diagnostic ultrasound through the Australasian Society of Ultrasound Medicine. Um, and basically that gives me, that gives me the, the ability to scan, so do the son sonographer job. Um, and report my own scans um, in a diagnostic capacity, um, which I find extremely useful on a day-to-day -day basis. So it, it does go a step beyond point-of-care ultrasound, um, but it also allows me to, to teach comprehensively with regards to point-of-care ultrasound. That's me probably a little bit more in a nutshell. Fantastic gains, and 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 if my memory serves me right, actually, your your last job in in Perth was actually one day a week, actually just scanning patients within the emergency department. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, the hospital I was working in is Sir Charles Gardner Hospital um, in Perth, and there were six diploma of diagnostic ultrasound holders, emergency physicians with DDUs. Um, and yeah, we, we had an amazing team leader. His name was James Rippey. Um, he is a god of ultrasound in Western Australia and emergency medicine. Um, and yeah, we would scan, we would do the diagnostic scans for all patients coming through the emergency department, uh, unless it was super specialized. So say a renal transplant patient, we wouldn't be scanning 
the kidney of a renal transplant patient um, or any specialized vascular cases. But in general, we did most other things. That's fantastic. Fantastic. And great exposure, actually, as well. I think, interestingly, um, just before we head off into some questions, it's it's really interesting having um, colleagues around you which are really pushing forwards and really starting mm. to not only open doors, but push boundaries onto accepted clinical practice and, and integration of, of, of POCUS into, into practice. Uh, how beneficial did you find that? Because it sounds like it was really a, not only a trendsetter, but it was, it was really the, the team and or leaders uh, were, were really starting to sort of push boundaries. Um, yeah, he's transformative. So there were four four clinicians in Western Australia who started up um, together, um, and Adrian Gowdy um, and James Rippey, Steve Dungey still practice on a daily basis. Um, and honestly, they they started using ultrasound before ultrasound was an accepted practice outside of radiology um, and outside of sonography. So they. They set, you know, they set the ground rules um, and they've actually developed it so far to make ultrasound a subspecialty of emergency medicine rather than just point of care. Okay, I'm not belittling point of care in any way, shape or form. Um, I was actually part of a debate um, uh, at our annual scientific meeting for the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. Um, and the debate looked at three different um, scenarios. So ultrasound as a subspecialty of emergency medicine, diagnostic ultrasound, um, point of care ultrasound should be the focus. Um, and the third one was every, every med student, every junior doctor, every doctor should be wearing a um, ultrasound probe around their neck rather than a stethoscope. So we looked at, we debated the, the spectrum which was very, very, very interesting. Um, and there, there is a debate for everything, you know. Um, but today, uh, the focus being point of care um, and is my love as I do think that it is, um, it is uh, management changing in patient care. Indeed, and I, I absolutely agree with you, Gaines, and, and think that, you know, not only is it informative in the in-hospital environment, but we'll, and we'll dig into this, how informative it is, and, and maybe even more so in the pre-hospital environment as a, as a decision maker and a decision tool. Not always, not always, but there's, but, and, and there's, there's times which we'll maybe just dig into a little bit later pivotal moments from from your no, absolutely i think i think i think it's the same in hospital and pre-hospital to be honest um uh, if it is if you utilize it correctly it changes decision making and it it expedites care and potentially will improve outcome this is actually my, was my, was my first question around patient assessment and diagnosis and, 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 and how much of an adjunctive tool it is uh, or the utility of, an, uh, of it as an adjunctive tool. I suppose my, uh, I, I'm a big believer in, in point of care ultrasound and it was certainly embedded within my practice as a critical care paramedic so for very much in, in um, cardiac arrest, PEA differentiation, but outside of that as well, outside of cardiac arrest in, in, in patients with... Um, uh, in 
In, in patients with um, acute lung pathology, such as um, uh, pulmonary edema and 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 or otherwise, um, um, and trauma as well, so blunt abdominal trauma, but. The argument which some of my colleagues would verse would doesn't really change your management Owen in the pre hospital environment. You know, if you think there's blunt abdominal trauma they're gonna go to the they're gonna go to the MTC anyway. If you think they've got wet lungs and they've got acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you're gonna treat anyway. But and so but I was my perspective on that was that actually well it isn't a it's a useful adjunctive tool to differentiate and and maybe even confirm a clinical your your clinical sort of diagnosis or differential diagnosis. Could you could you maybe speak to the naysayers that it doesn't change decision making um, in the pre-hospital environment? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's definitely extension of my physical examination and standard of practice for me um, with regards to confirmation of what you find on physical exam. So the naysayers. The naysayers will be those ones that are pretty competent, um, pretty confident with regards to their end diagnosis um, from a history and a clinical exam. Um, and I don't dispute that, okay? If you are good at what you do, you are solid, okay? Um, but ultrasound just adds extra information to the whole picture so that you can then pass that information down so from a pre-hospital environment point of view you can pass that information down and it can be utilized to expedite um, investigations and expedite people coming into the emergency department to expedite decision making so it doesn't necessarily change where you go it changes the journey the patient takes along the way. Um, and so from a pre-hospital point of view, yeah, you may not see the direct effects of it, but I can tell you that it has a knock-on effect and Im impacts a patient journey the entire way. So looking at so the advantages and disadvantages of point-of-care ultrasound, um, some of the advantages to me and to you are, like you say, clear cut because it helps, informatively helps, hopefully direct your therapy en route to wherever you were going to be going anyway. But also, it gives you a changing picture because it's because you can do it so quickly. You can repeat scans, um, hopefully, really quickly. The, it gives you the change in pathology because, especially. And I'd be great to hear your thoughts about this. In, in the pre-hospital environment, especially when you're so um, early on in the, maybe in the sequelae of the pathology, so that things might have only just happened, and, and the pathology is not ne necessarily there, the mechanism's there, but the pathology yep. isn't there, uh, because it takes time to bleed into the retroperitoneal space, or it takes time for it to accrue in the Morrison's pouch, you know, the lowest point in the abdomen, but 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 you, your clinical suspicion is there because they've had the, 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 the lateral impact RTC, or they've had um, other mechanism to suggest there could be abdominal pathology. Could you speak to... Maybe, and maybe just from clinical practice, the evolution of pathology you've seen in front of your face with, with, with ultrasound. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, a really easy one would be, would be a pneumothorax. 
Um, so a, a patient comes in, um, a trauma patient comes in and they need intubation. Um, and initially you've done your E-FAST and they do not have an, uh, a pneumothorax. Um, you intubate them, you give them positive pressure ventilation um, and their rib fractures then subsequently, you know, have they have a small pneumothorax with, with, with positive pressure uh, ventilation increases the size of the pneumothorax and therefore you can clinically do something about that from your ultrasound, you know. Um, so that is a very clear-cut um, example of how it changes and improves management in a direct, um, you know, directly. I won't wait for a chest X-ray on a patient. So ultrasound, bedside ultrasound has been proven in a supine trauma patient has been proven to be more sensitive and more specific than a chest X-ray to diagnose a, um, a pneumothorax. So, so it has a direct effect on patient management and with regards to intra-abdominal pathology, um, basically, so in general, um, people talk about picking up um, free fluid in the abdomen when there is 500 mils or more in the abdomen. Now, that, that is a huge range dependent on machine that is used and um, experience of practitioner. Um, but 500, let's take it 500 mils. Now, at 500 mils, you won't necessarily have any hemodynamic changes in a patient, okay? Um, but you can, and if you pick it up before the 500, well, you, you don't see it before the 500 mils, but it develops. Like you would repeatedly examine a patient, you repeatedly use an ultrasound to look at them from a free fluid perspective. And you can pick up those changes and radio ahead to let the team know that actually there is intraperitoneal blood. Now, intraperitoneal blood, the question is, where is it coming from? You know, um, And that's where the nuances um, come into play. Um, the, the reason why EFAST was developed um, was because... Basically, emergency departments were not set up to manage severe traumas. Um, and basically, so CT scan was far away from, from emergency departments and the marrying of the two um, wasn't quite there yet. So um, EFAST came into to practice and we used it in an unstable, hemodynamically unstable patient to differentiate whether we'd send them to theatre or whether we are able to, you know, put them through CT. So if they have in intraperitoneal blood, they generally should go to theatre. But there are nuances with regards to that management. Yeah. So looking at um, the various probes, uh, Gaynor, in your experience for, 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 for POCUS, and looking at the, uh, the phased array and the... Um, the linear probe. So, with the with the linear probe, uh, in in your experience, with a mixture of of of, of anatomy, really, um, do you when you're when you're when you're looking at uh, the different different lung spaces, is there any nuances of of of, of practice that you've picked up using either the linear or or um, or 
phased array probe phased array have i said that right yeah phased array. yeah phased phased or sector probe or cardiac probe um you know one one and the same uh they use the same name for all three of them <laughs> um yeah i mean to be honest when i do an efar scan i use my curvilinear probe so that's my probe i go to and even for lung i'll use curvilinear probe so um if i find an issue so if i find that i don't see lung sliding i will change to the linear probe yeah um so purely from a speed of um process i'll stick to the one probe unless I have pathology. If I have pathology, I then convert to the linear probe, so the pathology being, from a lung perspective, looking for a pneumothorax. Uh, the best probe to be using, looking, evaluating the pleural surface is uh, your linear probe. Um, and so I change over to my linear probe. And tips and tricks with regards to, to, to pneumothorax itself, um, or evaluating the, the lung in a supine trauma patient looking for um, a, a pneumothorax. I basically, so the dictum is you need to look at the highest point of the, the anterior chest wall, okay? Now, in some patients, it's really difficult to know what that highest point is, okay? And I don't like being left in the dark or guessing. And so I basically start mid-clavicular line with my probe over the clavicle, and I look at the first space below that. Um, and then I move sequentially from space moving down until I get to diaphragm. Um, the top tip for that would be when I get into a rib space, so an intercostal space, I am in longitudinal. So I have the bat sign, so two ribs and the pleural space between. Um, I stop moving my probe. Probe movement can um, make it difficult to appreciate pleural sliding. So I'll stop moving my probe. Uh, if a patient is able to comply, I ask them to take a deep breath in. If they're being bagged, I ask the person to bag them to do a significant bag so that I can actually assess pleural sliding. So the more the lung moves, the greater amount of sliding is appreciated. Okay. Um, so those would be my top tips from a lung sliding perspective. If you don't see lung sliding, it does not indicate necessarily only a pneumothorax. Pneumothorax is part of a differential diagnosis. So in a trauma patient, yeah, it is high on your list of differential diagnoses. Okay, The pathognomonic sign for a pneumothorax is a lung point. So you need to look at your clinical situation, your differential diagnosis, your probability, your pretest probability, um, and make a decision as to whether or not you're going to act on that specific no lung sliding, or do you have time enough to look for your lung point? Um, yeah, that's kind of where I'd go from a lung sliding perspective. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. Absolutely. And um, it's fantastic just to see your, your not only your perspective, but um, just those top tips, actually, because that's really helpful to differentiate uh, where the where the top of the lung is and, and also not miss um, some the, 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 the chances of optimizing uh, your the window window of opportunity for, for pathology. Um, I think I think can I say just one caveat to that? Um, a very large pneumothorax with a completely collapsed lung will not have a long lung point okay so that would be the caveat to looking for a lung point okay 
Indeed, indeed. So, um, Gaines, could we just look at um, how integral... Like you mentioned it before, actually, about, about about patient assessment, but also about history and and putting it all together with ultrasound. Could you um, could you speak to how you approach your your um, practice with ultrasound? Do you do you first sort of introduce yourself, do a patient assessment, and then integrate ultrasound, or is it or is it more just an introduction, a probe on, and and then an assessment? How how, how do you embed? Um, ultrasound within your practice? I think it depends on how um, critical, time critical the situation is. So how quickly do I want an an answer um, as to when I, you know, institute it. If if it is possible for me to introduce myself to the patient, I will always do that. (laughs) You got to win over a patient, you know, patient care is more than getting a, more than getting a diagnosis. Um, so, uh, you know, time critical situation, I will move in there. I will say, hi, I'm Gain or I'm going to be scanning you. Um, and I crack on, you know. Um, yeah, in a less time critical uh, situation, I, I take a history and I examine a patient. So, so ultrasound is, you, is a tool, so especially point of care ultrasound, Okay. Point of care ultrasound is a tool that is used in a clinical situation together with all the other tools that you have gathered over your years um, put together to give you a clinical gestalt, basically, um, and an answer um, or a, a part of an answer. So I would say point of care ultrasound needs to be integrated into the whole clinical picture rather than a magic wand. Yes, fantastic. Absolutely. So, um, and that integration is, is, is key. And, and I think to your point, actually, looking at expert practice, it is around um, being flexible as to when that, 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 that becomes part of the part of the um the assessment because like you said it, it, you either front load it if you need some quick 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 answers or like you said if you've got time you can then nuance the care and nuance yeah. the assessment and, and 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 bring it in on on the on the back end or indeed a little bit further further down the line so let's just look at just some phraseology if that's okay gainer for people who may may or may not be um aware or indeed um, comfortable with the phraseology so looking at hyperechoic um hyperechoic pictures or just just what hyperechoic even means what when when we're differentiating between um um uh, uh, the lack of image coming back or lack of clarity or brightness coming back at the back at the screen what what is hyperechoic as in what what pathology would show you sort of a hyperechoic mass or indeed a a, a clear differentiation or, or, or bright line on back on a uh, on an ultrasound yeah so the, the word hyperechoic itself means bright okay um hyperechoic so bright hyperechoic lots of echoes Okay, so lots of echoes means there that a lot of the ultrasound waves that are coming from the probe are bouncing back to the probe. 
and therefore creating an image, creating a bright image. Um, that to me means that the surface that the ultrasound beam is, is um, directed onto um, does not allow ultrasound sound waves to travel through it. Um, there are a few examples of that. One of the most um, one of the most used examples is air. So sound waves do not travel through air. Um, all sound waves will reflect off a air-filled structure. Um, example of that would be lung ultrasound. And lung ultrasound is actually a pretty unique, funky part of ultrasound. Um, and the reason why I say that is lung ultrasound has developed due to artifacts associated um, well, the artifacts that are created by the interaction of sound waves um, and air together with pathology in lung. Um, another example of a, a structure that looks hyperechoic would be a calcified structure. So bones are hyperechoic um, because all sound waves will not travel through bone. They will be reflected back to the ultrasound probe. Um, uh, if you if you put a probe on an ovary and they have a teratoma or a dermoid cyst, they can have teeth in that um, or calcified structures, um, and you can identify that because they are bright and white. Um, calcification of organs and things like that. And I suppose looking at blood clots, albeit in the in the in the, in the heart, or indeed. Um in various structures might be hypochoic. True to say, they might be hypochoic as well. Yeah, so blood clots is an interesting one. And whenever, so so I'd like to talk about anechoic then. So we've spoken about hyperechoic um, and, and then looking at the range of different, so ultrasound is all about black, white, and gray, mostly gray, okay? 50 shades of gray. Um, <laughs> um, and, so, so hyperechoic is bright and white. Um, anechoic is black. Um, anechoic means the sound waves have traveled completely through a structure, and that structure is fluid-filled. Um, sound waves travel through fluid. Um, if, the if the fluid has um, sediment in it, then that sediment can um, cause sound waves to reflect off it and therefore have some hyperechoic um, areas uh, in it. Um, and so you'll see some, some grayness to the black fluid, okay? Um, a, a really good example of this, so when, when, when you're looking at vascular structures, um, if you put a probe on a vessel, generally it's black, okay? Um, if you put a tourniquet on the arm, that vessel, can, the flow slows down and you can actually sometimes see the slow flow of blood through that vessel. Um, that's called spontaneous echo, echo contrast. Um, and yeah, it just highlights the, the sediment, which are the cells in blood. Um, and if it's flowing fast, you won't, they won't reflect sound waves back to the probe. But if it's flowing slow, then it will. Um, and moving on from that, like you were talking about um, blood being potentially hyperechoic, I would use the word heterogeneous when I talk about clotted blood. Um, clotted blood 
is a challenge. So on an, on an e-fast, if you're looking for free fluid, okay, we are taught to look for black stuff, okay? Black stuff that has sharp pointy edges, okay? Um, free fluid, free blood um, in the abdomen um, has the potential to clot. Now, clotted blood is heterogeneous. The word heterogeneous is a combination of grays, different color grays, okay? Um, that in itself is really difficult to identify on a, an EFAST scan because the gray of clotted blood can look exactly like the gray of bowel. So you have to have a high index of suspicion and you actually need to have done a few scans um, to identify the difference between the gray of clotted blood and the gray of bowel. One of the easiest ways of doing that is if the gray moves, as in peristalsis, then it's bowel. But a lot of the times, um, traumatic abdomen will have an ileus and so won't um, have peristalsis sometimes it is a little bit difficult to to tell the difference but generally if you have clotted blood you will in some areas have sharp pointy black anechoic areas that indicates free fluid that's fantastic so again looking at the so looking at the heart for from for a minute and, and looking at the subcostal view uh, of, of the heart what are some of the subtle signs that you pick up on that it's um in differentiation of 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 of, of pathology around around cardiac effusion versus tamponade and and I'm, i guess i'm asking this question and i'm i'm fully mindful it's got probably a lot to do with the history and mechanism prior to you putting the probe on anyway but is there is there any tips and tricks from either the subcostal or the parasternal uh long axis that you have utilized to identify pathology or indeed or indeed optimize your your view um yeah so so like you're alluding to with regards to um tamponade in a trauma patient um or or tamponade in a non-trauma patient a patient with a pericardial effusion with tamponade versus the patient with a pericardial effusion without tamponade um and basically the the bottom line is how fast is it developed um in a trauma patient so, so speed of development. The pericardium is a fibrous structure. It does not like to stretch. Okay. If it is asked to stretch quickly, it refuses. Uh, and the pressure is then turned onto the heart. And so you don't need a lot of fluid to actually tip that balance. Um, and a trauma case is, is a great example of that. Now, tips and tricks with regards to identifying um, a, a pericardial effusion in a trauma patient where you know you don't have a lot of blood uh, ultimately i would be looking for um anechoic fluid ideally there is a potential for it to clot but the likelihood is 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 less likely because of the fast flow okay um uh, my go-to view, so yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. What is my go-to view for a pericardial effusion? It remains the subcostal view if I can get a reasonable view. Reason being, um, 
the subcostal view gives you a quick look between the liver and the myocardium, okay, or between the pericardium, which is up against the diaphragm, up against the liver, and the myocardium. Um, and it's the clearest view to be able to see whether there is any fluid in that area. Um, tamponade comes when you have increased pressure and increased intrapericardial pressure will have effects on the right side of the heart first because it is the low pressure side of the heart. And in your subcostal view, you have best views of the right side of the heart plus your pericardial space in the quickest period of time. Now, I then take that to a apical four-chamber view because your apical four-chamber view actually gives you also, if you can get a good one. So that's the issue is it's technically more challenging. Um, and if you don't do them on a regular basis, uh, I probably wouldn't be jumping to that spot. Um, but if you are able to get a good view, you can get a great view of the right side of the heart um, and you can, can look for features of echo features of tamponade. Now, you can get echo features of tamponade before you get clinical tamponade. Um, and so you can determine that a patient will crash before they crash depending on the clinical scenario, okay? So echo features, when you do a lot of echo and you're talking about tamponade, you talk about echo features of tamponade um, and then you add in the clinical side of things when you're talking about pericardial effusions. Okay, no, that's fantastic. So looking, so migrating down now, um, I, so I agree with you, I, for, from my practice, I very much find an apical four chamber a very difficult view to, to get. Subcostal is probably the easiest, sorry, yeah, subcostal is the easiest, especially in cardiac doing a lot of cardiac arrests, you know, when you've got the, the, the Lucas II or a big um, mm. sort of mechanical yeah, CPR just, plunger. Can I just, can I just uh, jump in there? Um, so from a... From a using your probe in a CPR situation, I had to I had to kind of teach myself in this situation the best possible approach um, because it is quite a challenging situation. Um, uh, there's a lot of pressure on you as the person holding the probe to make a call from a, a heart movement point of view, even though that you know there's there's a lot of debate as to how important that is. Um, but ultimately, my approach is I look at various different areas around the heart. So I put my probe around the lucus, you know, the, the thumper of the lucus, <laughs> um, and I find the best window during compressions. And then I line everything up so that when compressions stop, I have the greatest chance, the greatest opportunity of seeing whether I can see any cardiac activity or any signs that would indicate a cause for the arrest. Yep. And that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, having that precursor, so having the knowledge of which view might, window might be the best because anatomy changes and it, it, does, it does vary. Having, doing some almost, you know, pre... Pre, um, 
pre-cardiac pause or pre-two-minute pauses um, it, yeah. with the view to, to, to then to think, actually, this is a better window or this is a better window. I always find the, the peristernal lung axis difficult because it's almost directly over the, the plunger. And, and I, I always... I always Managed to get better views on the peristernal lung axis, but but then yeah. again, it's 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 it just it just is a difficult view when you've got real estate pumping on the pumping on the chest all the time. But but you that's yeah. a fantastic tip actually, Gainer, because then you're informed as to which <laughs> how the pathology sorry how the anatomy is working for you, so you can adapt. Uh, yeah, you're using you're using your time a little bit more efficiently. So so instead of using time the the pause time to find the best spot you use the pause time to save your video clip um so that you can actually go and you to save the best video clip so that you can review it once cpr um has started again you know so again just migrating down to the to the right upper quadrant and looking at morrison's pouch um it, you know, they say it's the lowest point in the abdomen in a supine patient when when they're lying down. So it's if you're going to see if you're going to see an aggregation or a collection of of, of blood, this this will be this will be the point. Can could you speak to scanning uh, the the uniqueness of the right upper quadrant and, and why it's maybe a preferential uh, point to look at? Yeah, sure. Um, just. Just on the on that thought process with regards to it being the most dependent area in in the abdomen outside of the pelvis, um, it is purported to be the be, the most dependent area. Um, and and historically, people have always spoken about blood moving into this area specifically. But can I say for all the listeners out there, blood can be everywhere. So blood does not follow the rules. Blood has not read the textbooks. Okay, it can be anywhere <laughs> and and the views that so everyone looks for the money shot of morrison's pouch you know that beautiful picture of your kidney up against your liver with a lovely black stripe or without the black stripe in between you know um i look at the right upper quadrant as way more than just morrison's pouch okay i look at at the at the right upper quadrant as um Looking around the inferior tip of the liver, mm, I look at the inferior border of the um, kidney. If I can get down to the inferior pole of the kidney, I have started looking into the pericardic gutter where fluid can also collect. You know, I look at Morrison's pouch 100%, and I don't only look at a single image, a single slice of Morrison's pouch, I fan through the entire. Um, potential space of Morrison's pouch okay I look above the liver so suprahepatic and I look above the diaphragm um, so so that that fluid that hasn't read the textbook of you need to lie in Morrison's pouch will be found you know um, and it is, a, it is a great view. Um, it, is, it is one of the easier views to find from a, a right upper quadrant Morrison's pouch um, view. But, but just to all the listeners out there, there's, there's so much more to the right upper quadrant than just Morrison's pouch. Um, yeah. No, a a, rant. I, absolutely. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. And, and looking at the looking at liver, looking at the kidney, and also, you know, and the and the interaction with the diaphragm it's um 
it's there's there's a lot of information you can tether and gather from for, 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 from that view but fanning is a great it would be a great technique to try and get a mental because you're seeing a 2d image but what you want in your mind is a 3d perspective of that yeah. 2D image. so fanning is a great yeah absolutely so i i always talk about you know the uh, the the beam coming out of the ultrasound probe you need to think of 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 250 or um 256 or 512 piezoelectric crystals lined up on your curvilinear probe um and the size the the size of that is is as thin as a credit card so that's the only slice that you are seeing if you leave your probe static okay so moving your probe around Fanning and sliding is unbelievably important to develop that 3D picture, you know. Do not be afraid of moving your probe. A lot of people um, are afraid because they are unsure of what they're looking at initially. So, so my way of getting around that is put your probe on, identify the structures you see, okay. So stop and think about it identify structures and then have an idea of where to move your probe from there otherwise you freak out a little bit mm. so again just m moving on to the to the left upper quadrants and and to the uh, retrosplenic view which which it, historically i've i've kind of all, always called it as a knuckles down view because it is it feels like it's a mm. lot further around um and could you speak to 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 your experience with with that view and and maybe sort of some of the nuances of 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 scanning that you've found in in the left upper quadrant? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I when I teach EFAST scanning or right upper quadrants, so just going back to right right upper quadrants, I start I talk about drawing a line from the Ziffy sternum down to the bed um, in a horizontal along the patient's body. Um, and on the right upper quadrant, I start in the mid-axillary line, okay? On the left, left upper quadrant, um, I'll draw that same line, um, but I get, patient, I get um, trainees or anyone who has the probe in their hand to actually put their knuckles, like you talk about, uh, a knuckle down onto the bed approach. So you're starting in the posterior axillary line and you are aiming, so you're on the left-hand side of the patient and you're aiming up towards the right-hand shoulder, okay? Um, and, and same sort of thing there, you know. Um, my, I always say to everyone, basically, put your probe on, okay? Aim towards the right shoulder and stop and take a moment to understand what you're looking at. Because only once you understand what you're looking at, do you have an idea of where to move your probe to, you know. And a lot of the times it's going to be fanning anterior a little, a little bit further, um, sliding your probe inferiorly from there, um, and then angling your probe maybe a little bit more towards the suprasternal notch rather than the right shoulder. You know, so it's, it's developing these these movements. But if you don't understand what you're initially looking at, you will never be able to take the next step of developing movements to actually get the pictures that you want. And talking about the the left upper quadrant, um, everyone talks about the area between the spleen and the kidney, so the spleenorenal area. 
Um, and yes, that is an area that is easy to see um, anechoic fluid, um, but be mindful that there are many other areas to the left upper quadrant, that being the inferior pole of the left kidney, looking at pericolic gutters, that being the superior, superior to the spleen, um, and above the diaphragm. Um, so, you know, these are all areas that I will, I will look everywhere, not only those specific spots. Yeah. That's fantastic, Gaino. So migrating down to the, um, to the sort of the pelvic view for a minute, uh, wh where do you place your probe and, uh, and what are you looking for uh, when, you're, when you're looking down at sort of the retropelvic view? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's always interesting. I, so me personally, um, I start in longitudinal. Um, I, uh, traditional teaching is in transverse, but I find identifying landmarks in longitudinal a lot easier. And therefore, I start in longitudinal. Okay. So probe marker to the head of the patient um, in longitudinal in the midline. Um, and the first um, anatomical marking that I will identify on my scan is um, the pubic symphysis. Um, the reason being for that, everyone talks about, oh, look for the bladder. Um, now, bladders are not always filled with fluid um, and bladders sometimes rupture. Um, and so anatomy in that area can be distorted. Um, Granted, if you have an open book pelvis, your symphysis pubis is going to be a little bit more difficult to identify. <laughs> so you need to bear that in mind, okay? But in general, the most common uh, anatomical point that you can identify is going to be your symphysis pubis. Um, and then I move superior um, to that, looking for the bladder. The bladder is a landmark in the pelvis. Um, and from a fluid perspective, where are we looking for fluid? I would like your listeners um, to answer everywhere. <laughs> okay, we are looking for fluid everywhere because fluid has not read textbooks, like I said earlier. <laughs> um, but the textbook answer <laughs> to where we look for fluid <laughs> will be, um, so everyone talks about the, the most dependent area in the pelvis being um, a posterior to the bladder. So pouch of Douglas in woman, okay, um, which is posterior to your uterus if the woman has a uterus, okay, um, and in a male just posterior to your bladder, okay. Um, now, I can say that most of the fluid that I find is normally superior to the bladder, um, superior to the, the uterus, and in between a lot of bowel loops, you know. Um, so it's just something handy to, to, to understand that fluid can be everywhere, you know, um, and, and keep an open mind when you are looking. Fluid is, is traditionally black with pointy spots, but it can also be gray, you know. So keep an open mind, use your clinical acumen. Again, that's absolutely fantastic and really insightful. Um, if we could just come into land on a final question, if that's okay. Um, and that question would be, you know, I've heard you speak actually at many different conferences and many different places and give some amazing clinical anecdotal experience of using ultrasound in, in the pre-hospital environment. Could you maybe speak to one of these instances where you've used... Um, uh, point of care ultrasound uh, to to really 
aid your decision making in the pre-hospital environment? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it is a super handy tool in low resource environments. Um, it's really, really handy if you have to um, make logistical decisions. Um, yeah, and just in, in patient treatment um, in general. So I, I've been super lucky enough to, to work pre-hospitally um, and do expedition medicine. Um, and the, the situation that I, I mean, there have been quite a few situations, but the main one that I, that made a, a big difference and a big impact on patient care and on um, logistics was in the South Pole. So um, I was at the South Pole accompanying um, some clients. I worked for a company called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, um, and they fly clients to the South Pole. Um, and they start, so the plane takes off at an altitude of about 700 meters above sea level. Um, and the South Pole is at an altitude of um, about a physiological altitude of about 3,400, 3,500 meters above sea level. Um, and, and that in itself can um, lead to uh, altitude sickness of multiple forms. Okay. Um, so uh, altitude AMS, um, pulmonary edema, um, or cerebral edema. Um, now, I was there, and I was looking after the clients, and we were going to have a wedding. Um, we were preparing for the wedding. <laughs> and we, I had a phone call, and there was a, um, a medevac um, for some clients that were doing a last degree. Uh, the last degree is where they get flown to that altitude, um, and they they ski the last degree, which is 110 kilometers, so from 89 degrees south to 90, 90 degrees south. Now, it was uh, two days into their trip, um, so they hadn't been at altitude for an extended period of time, um, and one of the guys was really short of breath. Um, now, we flew out, we brought him back to the South Pole, um, and I had to make a few um, management treatment decisions, um, and so diagnostic decisions, treatment decisions, and logistical decisions. Um, and uh, diagnostic decisions, so, so from a uh, history and examination point of view, um, my, the highest on my list of differentials was pneumonia. Um, but part of my differential was PE and um, acute pulmonary edema from altitude. Um, and if it was APO um, related to altitude, management is descent, descent, descent. Um, the only way you descend from a polar plateau at the South Pole is getting on a plane and flying a significant distance, a thousand kilometers to descend a, uh, enough to, to actually warrant um, an altitude descent. Um, and so I had to make a few decisions. So I put a probe on um, various places. So, so heart-wise function was great um, and right side of the heart was not um, dilated. From a lung perspective, um, his lungs were dry. So no B lines, A lines and good lung sliding. Um, no evidence of consolidation, um, uh, evidence of potential, uh, so a couple of beelines, but nothing that would make a diagnosis, okay? Um, and then from a leg scan point of view, did not have a DT. 
Um, so I, it reduced the likelihood of PE. It doesn't exclude a PE, but reduced the likelihood of PE to the point where I made it certain not to treat from a PE perspective. Um, it took away the potential of APO. So ultrasound, lung ultrasound is very sensitive for acute pulmonary edema. Um, lung ultrasound actually picks up subclinical pulmonary edema. So studies have been done at altitude and prior to symptoms developing, you can notice beelines um, and increasing interstitial fluid uh, on your ultrasound. Um, so I was able to manage um, this patient at the South Pole with supplemental oxygen um, antibiotics um, and time. Uh, the wedding party was able to have their party um, and celebrate at the South Pole, which was pretty significant for them. They'd been saving for a significant period of time and were really looking forward to celebrating at the South Pole. Um, and so in the end, everyone flew back down to, to base camp, um, happy as Larry. And my patient actually improved significantly, as you can imagine, with the altitude drop. Um, uh, but he was comfortable at the South Pole managing on an oxygen concentrator. So, yeah, that was, that was my highlight from an ultrasound perspective. But there, there have been quite a few other, other little short stories, so like Achilles tendon rupture um, that you can pick up on ultrasound quite easily. Um, you can diagnose broken bones pretty easily. Long, long bones. Mm. So, so listen, I think what we'll do is we'll have to get you back on another podcast actually, because I would love to hear more more stories and 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 just embed that within clinical practice and, like I said, just techniques. Because this, this is you know even even using ultrasound to diagnose fractures outside of your you know your more formulaic or historical you know patient assessment is is fantastic and it put pieces together far more uh, integrally the, the 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 mechanism and gives you gives you a gives you a picture of the of the injury pattern in front of your face so i would love to get you back on the podcast to for for, for a round two so to speak Sure. Hey, I, I did I did leave out a top tip and trick um, from an EFAS perspective, yeah. and and that top tip and trick is um, not all intraperitoneal fluid is blood. So um, you really do need to use clinical acumen, and if you feel your patient has liver failure, you know you're going to be you're going to be taking that into consideration in the whole picture because you know not all fluid in the abdomen is blood yeah, so you know yeah does the patient have pd you know peritoneal dialysis uh, you know taking you know just just using more than just the ultrasound probe to to reach your conclusion yeah Listen, Gaynor, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And um, I've certainly benefited from sort of the years of, of knowing you, but I, I hope listeners have also, also benefited just from some of the uh, top tips and deeds and tricks that you've uh, given us. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for the opportunity. And I hope, um, I hope people were able to pick up any some pearls. <laughs>